back to closer mentality. I'm your host, Julia Mellett. Today's episode showcases the never-ending impact of a lifestyle built around exercise. Meet today's guest, Beth Gardner. She differs from the majority of this podcast's guests in that she didn't find her sport until senior year of college. She attended Drexel University. I had worked in New Jersey Shore um, at the beach, and I kept having people say to me, do you do crew? Now, in Pittsburgh, we didn't have the sport, so I didn't know what they meant. I'm like, J. Crew, what do you mean? Um, and so it wasn't until I got to Drexel University that fall that I started to see signs literally all over the campus, join crew. And if, if that's not like a sign from the universe, I was like, hmm, maybe I should look into it. So yeah, that's how I got involved in it. And I literally fell in love with it the first practice, mainly because in my family and the DNA, we all love water, whether it's an ocean or a river, you know, a stream, we gravitate towards nature and water. So it was a natural fit to me. Drexel's team was composed mainly of athletes with experience, either sculling or sweeping. But Gardner was forced to quickly learn both. She soon found herself aboard a 27-pound fiberglass boat on Philadelphia's Boathouse Row, trying valiantly to pick up the minuscule details of such niche synchronicity. So there's sweep rowing. And what that means is each rower has one oar that they use to leverage their body weight, leverage the boat horizontally through the, the water. The key with rowing successfully on a technique level is, and physics is you want the boat to just travel at a horizontal level with little vertical movement. So the sweep um, is with one oar, and an easy way to remember that is sweeping with the crew, right? just use one broom. But then there's sculling, um, which is S-C-U-L-L-I-N-G. And that's when you use two oars. And they're, they're much smaller in um, length as well as circumference compared to the sweeping oar. From my experience, when I was training, you had to be involved in both. And actually both work hand in hand. It's like if you participate in say basketball, and then you're going to transition, say, into playing volleyball. Believe it or not, the skill set that you have to play basketball is transferable to volleyball, and it's transferable to softball. So the skill set that you're gaining uh, by rowing, say, again in that 27-pound single boat, it is transferable to when you get into a large boat with eight people in it, rowing with just the two by four. So that was that was pretty much the prerequisite back when I started was you needed to prove yourself in the sculling boat in order to be considered for any team boat. When her coach suggested that her numbers were high enough to get national attention, Gardner leapt at the opportunity to showcase her sweep skills in Tennessee. To the credit of Mamie Doyle, she was the one who said to me, you know, we should submit your scores, your rowing machine scores, and then there's a weightlifting test as well. And to send it to the U.S. governing body because there's a pre-elite summer camp going on. And when I wanted to, she wanted to see like, you know, if I get accepted to it. And to her credit for a female who's already was actively involved in the elite level of rowing, 
um, not just as a coach, I, I really applaud her in approaching me um, and offering that because she, she could have just brushed it off. She didn't have to do that. So it's a testament to her core, just how confident she was as a female, as a woman competitor to say, you know, let's just test, send them in. So she sent them in and I got invited. Um, and because Drexel works on a term system, so it's a 10 week term system, the first semester or term doesn't start till mid-September, which means then the last term doesn't end until mid-March. So I knew I was going to miss graduation, which was fine by me because the idea of sitting in a stands in the sweltering heat of Philadelphia did not appeal to me. Um, I had my diploma literally mailed to my mother. I said, just mail her the diploma. I got invited to the camp and I went literally to Chattanooga, Tennessee, right at, right after finishing my last exam. And I was encouraged by the psychology department, I should add as well, because they heard about this opportunity. They said, yeah, you should do it. You should go. And so I thought I was just going to go for the summer and, you know, improve upon my rowing skills. I, I knew that there were people that were had been rowing since the ninth grade in high school. I knew I was still very new into the sport, obviously. Um, so I, I didn't put a lot of focus on it aside from, oh, this will be a great activity to do the rest of my life. And it's something I can do um, while I'm working because I could already see there are a lot of um, passionate individuals that were growing all, you know, all the time throughout the day, particularly in the summer months. And another thing that attracted me to the sport was I would watch these elderly people with their walkers go down the, the actual ramp at the boathouse, and this is along the historical landmark Crowhill Road. There are a number of, of boathouses there, all of which were built in the late 1800s. So that tells you sort of the, the timeline. But I would watch them go down into the boat and it, you could see their spirit light up once they were in the boat and out rowing to the best of their ability, rowing technically how they could, right? So I knew that was like, oh, I'm an athlete. I think I could really get into the sport. That's something I can do later on in life. So that was sort of my whole viewpoint at that point. There sat Gardner at the mercy of the water and the girls around her. It was a level of synchronization that fortunately struck a familiar chord. Two decades of ballet, tap, and jazz were instrumental in forming the way Gardner paced herself. I can't speak for anyone else, but for me, I again, that dance background really helped out with that transition as I was used to having to learn choreography and be in sync with everyone else that was dancing in a performance um, and having to go along with the music and stay in tempo with the music um, and manage all the different types of choreography from, you know, you're dancing and you're standing to all of a sudden you're on the floor and you're doing movements on the so it came naturally for me again it was strictly because of having all that dance experience um, I was able to understand how to follow someone in front of me as though I'm, I'm actually photocopying them exactly to what they're doing um, and I also had very good coaching good coaching from the start of, of growing where I didn't have time to make 
bad habits. Um, so when I had to sit in a, a fiberglass boat that weighed 27 pounds and there's big me getting in there and I all of a sudden I have to balance it, um, it didn't take me as long to, to grasp balancing as somebody else that didn't have that, that ability to know their center from dancing. The amount of synchronization it requires to get eight individuals on the same exact performance page for 2,000 meters is incredible. But Gardner says it's not all forged from within. Technology assists. In, in the boat, there's what's called a stroke meter. And it's an electronic device that actually counts your rowing strokes. And as I was explaining to someone yesterday, each all the races pretty much have some sort of prescribed race plan that rowers, the team, whether you're in a boat or you're rowing individually, will stick to throughout that 2,000 meters. 2,000 meters is the equivalent of a mile and a quarter. So when you have the race plan and the prescribed stroke rates and that stroke rating meter, um, the individual that sits actually in the stroke of the boat, so that would be the, the stern section of the boat, not the bow, um, will we'll have that meter in front of them to uh, gauge, to follow through on that stroke. And then it's just everyone else's job sitting behind them to, to stick with them. And that stroke rating can shift throughout a race starting, you know, as high as, say, 37 or close to 40, and then it can shift down to say 32, but then it'll go back up again. But that's, it's very important. And then if you have in a boat with eight people and there's actually a coxswain in there, um, that individual will also be navigating down the course. Dance, along with a propensity for distance running, allowed Gardner acute knowledge of her body's movement. It paid dividends when she sat down in the boats. If we're looking at it from a biological standpoint, it's it's your your quads and your glutes and then your lower back. That whole area needs to be extremely strong. You really need to have a strong core. And I can speak from experience where I had been a runner. I started out in the sport and the coach I had at the time had me doing a lot of upper body work just to build the upper body because my legs were, and, and were already really strong but she didn't focus on the core. And that's a problem area in my family. We have what's called the gardener gut. It's part of the genetics. And so she didn't focus on that. So what happened? I herniated a disc the first year in. That herniated disc set Gardner back six months. Still, she took on a coaching position, helping teammates fine tune from the banks. Knowing exactly what it took to perform at her peak, it was easier for Gardner to return with that improved perception. Suddenly, she saw the sport from both sides, and she dove back into the synchronized nature as soon as she could. One aspect that stood out to her when she returned was the speed at which decisions were made and adjustments were carried out. In the event that speed needs heightened or an angle adjusted, Gardner says that the group collectively shifts within two strokes, a matter of a few seconds within a couple strokes, literally. Um, if you're in a sculling boat, for example, with four people, usually the person that's in what's called two seat, so that's the person that's the second seat from the bow will have, will be giving the race plan commentary. 
And that's the individual that's going to then command to the individual stroking to go ahead and shift the rate. And then everyone just does it in sync simultaneously. So we're all, it's as though we're all rowing as one, or at least we should be rowing as though we're one, um, not four sets of blades, but literally one, one set of blades. When it's in sync and you are completely in sync with your teammates, it almost feels effortless. There's not as much uh, energy that's being ex used up at that time. An example of that would be, for example, a, a figure skate, professional figure skate. Look how easy they make it look on the on the ice to just sort of glide along and they're doing their twists and jumps and everything of that nature. You want the rowing stroke, particularly in a team boat, to feel that, <clears throat> excuse me, effortless. Now, don't get me wrong. We are exerting a lot of effort. Um, the heart rates are uh, definitely nearing max, if not at anaerobic threshold. But it, if it, you're really in sync, you it makes the boat on a physics level um, feel as though you're not working quite as hard as you are. It, it's there's a sort of a high that you get from it, um, different than the running high. But that I that's one of the reasons I stuck with it was when you're working with people, all different backgrounds, body types, you're all with the same goal of getting to the finish line first and you're in sync. Um, it's it's just it's incredible. There's a natural high to it. She and her teammates were also in sync calorically. Of the heavyweight and lightweight divisions, Gardner rode with Drexels and the competitive heavyweight teams. I was of a heavyweight division, so there was not a weight restriction for us. The key for me, as well as other women, is we had to keep our weight up, so to speak. Um, so I was weighing about at 160 pounds to 165. That was my fluctuation. Um, but coach wanted me at, at 175. So I, a lot of us kind of ate anything under the sun. I, I'm not going to know the exact number of calories. It was certainly 5,000 or more. But let me just give you sort of a visual idea. It was not hard for me to order a medium pizza, eat all of that myself, and then get a, pull out a gallon of ice cream that's in the freezer and then eat, eat half of it in one sitting because my body just needed that fuel. It was not hard for me to, to boil a pound of pasta and eat half of that box in one sitting. Because again, my body needed as much fuel, both complex carbohydrates as well as the protein um, in order to uh, complete those workouts. I ate far more in rowing than I ever did in, uh, in running. But it was a lifestyle, you know, you, you got up in the morning, sometimes before the sun was up and you were out rowing, training for a couple hours. And then like myself and many others, we had to work. And then you leave work and you head back down and do whatever prescribed training is there. So it is a lifestyle. There used to be a t-shirt I owned that I remember seeing in college that said, I can't, I gotta row. And that was so true. I couldn't, I got a row. In fact, when I retired, many of my friends 
from high school or college all of a sudden had families, they had gray hair, they were living a completely different lifestyle. And I was like, wow, I missed out on that. You know, <laughs> I didn't realize just how locked in I was in this, this very small world um, compared to the rest of the world, the people of the same age. When she left rowing at 29 years old, Gardner finally paused to take a step outside the bubble and for the first time evaluated her life. I wasn't getting any faster. I had been overtrained all the time. And the reason I knew I was overtrained was we had been trained, many of us had been trained to monitor our resting heart rate. And what that means is when you get up in the morning, you check your heart rate. And we would usually use um, a special device to, to get it correct, to find out the number. So I had heart rate monitor. So um, I had a polar heart rate monitor and I would always get up in the morning and be close to 100. And even going to bed at night, I could hear my heart pounding. And I was tired all of the time. But at the same time, that was part of the lifestyle. So there's a, there was a fine line for me to figure out, am I overtrained? Am I just been overtrained for too many months, maybe maybe more than a year, um, or is my body just shutting down? There was just such a vague area, but the, the, at the end of the day, I just wasn't performing. I had reached my peak and I wasn't going any faster. Her final race in 1999, Gardner had an epiphany. That last race I had in December of 99 was an informal race called the Speed Order, and it took place on like in South Carolina. When I was sitting at the starting line, I literally heard sort of a gut voice say to me, you're done. This will be your last race. Now, whether it was, you know, God, the universe, higher power, all I knew is that that was going to be my last race. And I got through the finish line and I explained in detail within the book, you know, that whole uh, situation, but, and, and that was it. I knew I was just done. It was time to move on. And it's a challenging transition for any athlete, uh, particularly when they've, they've made it their lifestyle to go from that point to uh, moving on to a new chapter. In life. But that's, that's really when I knew it was like, all right, this is enough. This is you know, wasting time. And I also was approaching 30. And so when it, any individual, male or female, is about to approach a new decade, you, you tend to start thinking about in the back of your mind, what do I want to accomplish? What do I want? How do I see my life? And I had already been doing that. A year into retirement, newly 30, and planning to run a marathon in the coming months, Gardner suddenly got a phone call that would change her life forever. She had stage three breast cancer. All the more of, of a jolt um, because it's not stage one, it's a different ballgame, it's stage three. So I really had to sit and pull over sort of in my life, pull over to the shoulder if I was driving on a highway and the highway of life and, and really process that. Like it, it, was, it was more than just stage one uh, where sometimes they just have to get radiation and then they move on with life. You know, it was stage so that meant it went through the lymph node, which made me think, oh my God, is it somewhere else? Is it in my lung? But it, it is interesting, the strength of the human mind and how it can still 
perform at an extremely strenuous level. I mean, a marathon is, I was only planning on doing one and one only uh, because of my size. I'm not genetically predisposed to run marathon, Clydesdale in the running world. So I didn't want to put that type of, of challenge onto my body, particularly my joints. So um, yeah, it, it, it was jolting to say the least. No family history of cancer couldn't have prevented the 2.8 centimeter tumor the surgeon discovered. I got diagnosed when I was driving to work on 611 in North Philadelphia, not far from Albert Einstein Hospital. And anyone listening familiar to, with Philadelphia would know the area where I'm, I'm talking about. It's, it's very urban. You drive with your windows up, your doors locked, you stay focused and it's rush hour. So I received a call, I'm in my Volkswagen box. Um, it's got a stick shift. I've got my stainless steel Starbucks mug filled with coffee and the phone rings, I pull it out of the console. It's my surgeon and she's telling me that the biopsy had turned out that I had cancer. And at this point I'm literally in the left-hand lane, uh, again in North Philly. And I know that I need to get to the right lane and then find somewhere to pull over. But it's, it's 611 is predominantly, it's not a highway, but they certainly do move at, you know, at a fast speed at times, particularly during a rush hour. So I, thanks to being an athlete, once again, I was able to sort of calmly hang up the phone and then just drive the right lane and then I found the Sunoco which sat in the middle of, of 611 and I pulled over there just to sort of take a breath <laughs> collect myself because <laughs> uh, I was in my athletic mindset at that and again thanks to the coaching that I had thanks to these extraordinary people that I'd been training with um, that whole experience really helped in terms of just sort of regrouping at the Sunoco, you know, in a, in a less favorable environment. <laughs> the next step was once I got to my office, I ended up um, contacting the um, doctor and then I scheduled a, a period of time that my mother could come in from Pittsburgh and we could sit with the surgeon to discuss the options. So the options were then lumpectomy, two rounds of medication. And I mind you, all, all this time, I'm definitely probably going through shock. But thanks again to being an athlete, I was able to navigate through it. I mean, just driving to work, I, I don't know how I got there. It's definitely uh, thanks to the universe. Gardner was advised to keep exercise in the treatment plan, but marathon training became a light walk. As probably most endurance athletes, whether they're marathon runners, triathlete throwers, we're hardwired to work out each day. It's, it's like brushing our teeth. You do it, you wanna do it. Yeah, particularly when it's, you're sort of born to move, you're born to be an athlete. So for me, walking and, and lightly jogging, I didn't mind doing it. In fact, I was, in, determined to do it. Although it was extremely humbling because I 
had all of a sudden been able to training for a marathon. And because of the chemotherapy effect on my lungs, my uh, ability to transport oxygen throughout my body was um, depleted. It was, it was harder for me. My body had to work all the harder for me to carry it um, taking running strides. So I ended up doing a lot more walking compared to running. Sometimes I do a walk run. I actually talk about that in the book. It's the humbling effect of all of a sudden you're, you're used to your, you're used to be able to throw on those tennis shoes, you know, grab whatever you're going to listen to music to, and you're out the door and you're just doing a little run, stretching, run up, and you go. Um, and all of a sudden, I couldn't go. I had to stop. I had to walk. A lumpectomy was performed before the chemotherapy began, but Gardner mentally and physically buckled herself in for the long haul. Luckily, her college rowing teammates just so happened to pop back into her life at the perfect time. The procedure lumpectomy was done the same day. So I had the lumpectomy in the morning and then by the afternoon, I was heading home. Um, so I didn't have to stay over that, which was fine. Um, the chemotherapy I had done through a friend at the time on Saturday. Um, so I, that's all sort of explained with the book, that journey of getting chemotherapy and everything I went through with that. Um, but it was, I was fortunate because uh, there are particularly two individuals that directed me beyond the initial stages of cancer, both names with Jessica. Ironically, I had met them, um, one of them, Jessica Cardwell, when I was at Drexel University, she was there. She's actually one of the first people I met when I got involved in the sport. Um, and she was working at the University of Pennsylvania at the Abramson Center. So she was the one that directed me to my actual surgeon at Pennsylvania Hospital, as well as the oncologist. Now I had shopped around literally um, in Philadelphia area with the top surgeons around to determine which one I would go with. But I knew, having known Jessica well, and I knew the, from my intuition, the moment I met the breast surgeon at Penn Hospital, Dr. Dahlia Sadilov, I knew she was the one, hands down. It's just, uh, an, again, another sign from the universe. Um, so Jessica Cardwell is very instrumental. And then the other Jessica, Jessica Grossnickel, um, she and her mother, Susan, were instrumental in sort of emotionally checking in on me. Um, Susan actually drove me that morning to procedure. When you're going through or about to go through something challenging in life, it's interesting how God will literally put in your life people to help you navigate it long before you even realize that you're headed into a storm. So all of these people, you know, people I knew along Boathouse Row, I mean, they had all been in my life for that period of time. And I thought for that reason, for rowing, you know, with with Jessica Cardwell, I was the university connection. I thought that that was the reason why they were in my life, not because they were going to be instrumental, be rocks, um, be checking in on me periodically when I was going through the chemo. I thank God, you know, as well as them, for strategically putting these people in my life when, you know, for that specific reason. 
Um, there's another group of family. And again, God will put people in your life if they're not from the same religious background. They're a different race. They're from a different culture. I mean, it's, it's mind-blowing. I can write a book on just the people that have entered into my life for no other reason than God doing it for a specific reason, because he needs them to navigate me to something that's going to be too much for me for my skill set to be able to figure out. Uh, the Pant family, that's P-A-N-T, P is in Paul, A-T, that family of four um, I had met during, right before retiring from the sport of rowing. Um, I had met their oldest son, Rajiv, when I was working at Philly.com and just on the, the tail end of my rowing career. Um, and I also met his brother, Vic, um, during that same time. They had lived in Philadelphia. And then because their parents would travel from India to Philadelphia to visit periodically, I got parents. Um, and hands down, that family was like an extended family. The parent, their parents were like my extended parents. Um, in the sense of, you know, they were there um, to emotionally, you know, check in on at all times. They were, they were, they had a complete pulse on the situation. So uh, if anything, not only does God put people into your life from a wide range of areas uh, uh, throughout the world, but it just also shows the power of prayer and how significant it is, regardless of where it's coming from. 12 rounds of chemotherapy stood between Gardner and the potential to resume the life she had been so used to. For the first five years, I was getting a complete bone scan. I was getting you know, a breast MRI. My entire body was scanned um, medically to see if there was cancer in any, any area. Of it. And that was every six months. So then you changed every year. That's how it shifted. But I, had, I was... So used to going in there that at one point, the nurse that was predominantly with me the entire five years <laughs> said to me, you know, I, I said, can I come back another six, every six months for the next five years? And I'm like, no, Beth, you can go. You're, you're good for now. Like, it was hard for me. <laughs> they were my security blanket. It was hard for me to let go. They're like, no, you can't come back every six months now. Don't take it personally. <laughs> so um, part of that's probably, again, the athlete in me, but I, you know, as a statistic level, I just wanted to make sure that the test room. So, yeah, it's every year. Um, and having, again, done the research on my own to that level, um, I was still somewhat on guard. From her endurance athlete experience and her unexpected cancer journey, Gardner was advised to write a book. She penned it as candidly as she could laying moments out on paper as a way of coping, but also as a cautionary tale. No one is too healthy to escape diagnoses. Elite athletes can't outrun or outtrain cancer. Well, I started out writing a journal. And the reason I started out writing into a journal is because that's what the oncologist and nurses recommend. So there I am, the athlete. That's I'm looking at them like the coaches, so I started writing a journal. And then I was, I was continuing to write the journal, and that's when I thought, this could be a book. But again, I didn't study journalism. I didn't study um, American Lit. It just wasn't my calling. So I, I started to transfer the journal into a book. Again, it was from 2001 to 2004. Um, so that in itself was very therapeutic. 
without me fully realizing how therapeutic, just being able to put it down on and type it in, you know, to to a Word document was very therapeutic for me. Um, and 20 years ago, 15 years ago, I, I still have to say, regardless of the fact that there, I had not reached permission, um, and I, you know, I still had 10 years sort of to go to hit that milestone. Even though I, I still probably wasn't of the mindset to publish something like that. It wasn't of my personality. So it's it's because of having done the actual work psychologically um, on a metaphysical level to understand why I attracted the non-hereditary uh, disease like cancer. That's, that's how... Because I took the time to understand why I actually attracted the disease, took the time to pull out all of the toxic roots that were associated to that disease, that has enabled me to get to this place today where I'm comfortable with publishing the book. She hadn't reached the five-year milestone of her remission journey when the book was finished. Gardner only opted to publish her book, One Rowing Stroke at a Time, Surviving Stage 3 Breast Cancer, in 2022 after 21 years of cancer-free living. This is basically part of my mission in life. The, the fact of being an athlete, you know, or having gone to university or anything else that happened prior to is really just a building block for really ultimately what my purpose is. And that's to help continue to motivate cancer patients as well as the caregivers. I do not exclude the caregivers because I know from my own experience and watching caregivers not even taking care of me but other people um, as well as the hospital staff the nurses the doctors the physical therapists um, that it's it's all encompassing and all overwhelming for all of them, particularly during a pandemic which is the reason why I decided to pull out that manuscript during the worst times in her life the most challenging periods Gardner was always motivated by her late older brother Todd he was born with cerebral palsy. So when you're growing up with someone in the household who has ongoing medical needs, and at some times has to get rushed to the ER for one reason or another, um, that that set the bar for me on what how life can be challenging. Um, so because he was such an inspiration, and he's also part of the reason why I got involved in the sport of rowing, or involved in any athletic activity was because I was able to do something that I knew he couldn't so I would do it for him in spirit and in fact all the met rowing medals that I had earned when once I moved back to Pittsburgh I actually gave them all to him there was one medal that I actually buried him with um, back in April 2020 laid him to rest um, but he had set the bar to this is how you live a normal life with all the challenges um, and so when you, you have that, my bad day when receiving chemotherapy is equivalent to his every day. So there's no room for me to complain. Just rest um, and get back into the game. You know, for me, I, I approached the cancer battle and particularly getting the treatment as though it was an athletic event. And that, again, being that raised as an athlete, being hardwired as an endurance athlete, really attributed to 
to me being able to say, okay, this is the mindset. I'm in a new game. This is this is the game of life. This is this is this. There are no room. There's no room for error. This is the make it or you're gonna die. Figure this out. Get through it or you're gonna die. There's it's the final only. It's the final only. Those words stuck with me when she said them during our interview last month. Having the pleasure of sitting down with Beth during June, National Cancer Survivor Month, made my chance to help tell her story even sweeter. Thank you so much for listening to Beth's Tales of Adversity. These are the kinds of stories I love getting to absorb and pass on. But I wouldn't be able to do this every week without today's sponsor, BetterHelp. Thanks to BetterHelp for sponsoring this episode. If you've ever listened to a Closer Mentality episode and thought, I feel exactly the same way, I'm working with BetterHelp to bring online therapy to your phone and computer. BetterHelp offers video, phone, and live chat options, and you can speak to a licensed therapist in less than 48 hours. BetterHelp will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist. BetterHelp has more than 20,000 licensed therapists around the country, and you have access to them at any time. You can get thoughtful messages from your therapist, and if you aren't happy, it's free to change providers. If you're worried about the cost of traditional talk therapy, BetterHelp also plans for that. They offer financial aid if funding is the only thing standing between you and getting the help that you need. Join the over 2 million people taking charge of their mental health with the help of an experienced professional. I have a special offer for all Closure Mentality listeners. You can get 10% off your first month of professional therapy at betterhelp.com forward slash Closure Mentality. That's betterhelp.com forward slash closer mentality. Thanks again to BetterHelp for sponsoring this episode. The link is also in the show notes. And the link to Beth's book is also down below. Thank you so much to Beth for sharing her story on episode 75 of Closer Mentality. You can watch she and I's full interview on Closer Mentality Uncensored YouTube channel. You can also see additional content on Instagram and Twitter at Closer Mental. We're almost to 100 followers on Twitter. Thank you all so much for listening to 75 Weeks of Stories. As always, I'm your host, Julia Mellett. See you next week.